1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. And hi, everybody. As we continue this breaking news coverage of these markets, stocks are tumbling today after a mega three-day rally. Right now, the Dow's down 672 points. Uh, So that's well off the lows. It's pretty much across the board a 3% decline. And despite these losses, the Dow is still on track for its best week since the 1930s. It's been a long week. It's hard to remember all of that. Uh, For the S&P, it would be the best week since 2009. But just today, the earnings growth estimate for all of 2020, this is the one that comes from analysts of all the different companies they cover. Overall, it's turned negative for the S&P 500 for this year. And that would be the first time since 2009 that we've seen that for a full year. We've also just gotten more troubling numbers out of Italy, which just reported it's deadliest day of the outbreak with coronavirus deaths, deaths nearing 1,000 a day. Let's get to Bob Bassani for more. Uh, Bob, as we await this vote uh, that the House is going to be taking any moment now to pass this giant stimulus bill.
2: There was a lot of hopium last night, Kelly, and it was a little disconcerting. We were 20% off the highs on the S&P from the lows on Monday. There was reports of insider buying going on. There was reports, of course, the dollar was off uh, off the highs recently. And that was some cause for hope. But as you can see, the markets are not doing that well today. And, in fact, there's a lot of return of concern overall that the volatility is going to continue. The VIX remains at 67 or so. That's implying the market is estimating four or five percent intraday volatility for the next month. We've been seeing that on a regular basis for the past month. So traders are seeing what's been happening and they're projecting into the future. Take a look at some of what I call I call them high beta detectors. So for example, energy stocks like Apache down notably today. Industrials like Textron, also notably weak. Uh, Some of the semiconductors. These stocks tend to move a little faster than the rest of the market, so I watch them as a sign of volatility. Retailers, Gap, for example, is another good example. L Brands, they move a little bit more, and that's what's happening today. Uh, Kelly referenced uh, Procter & Gamble, some of the consumer staples are holding up better. But Kelly referenced the earnings situation. So, yes, Refinitiv has us down 0.5% now for the year. But a lot of the other uh, analysts out there are talking about 15% declines in the case of Credit Suisse, all the way down to 33% potential declines uh, in the case of Goldman Sachs. So the numbers, Kelly, are all over, and the bottom lines we don't know. And it's not going to help that a lot of the... Uh, companies are not going to uh, decline to give any kind of earnings guidance for the rest of the year when we get earnings season in about two weeks. Hey, Bob, are, are
1: we going to have an earnings season? Because as you correctly pointed out the other day, the SEC is giving companies a little bit of a break on those filing deadlines, right?
2: Yeah. Yes. They're going to allow a 45-day deadline for companies reporting of uh, in the, between March and July essentially. And that implies that a lot of companies are now gonna have the ability to simply say, we're not only not gonna provide you any uh any guidance, we're not gonna file our ten Qs at this point, which will provide a lot of details. It's understandable because they don't have very good numbers. They don't have uh, estimates that are really uh, solid at this point. But it's going to throw the ability to take a guess at what the right multiple should be into doubt again. This is why we're getting 100-point swings in the S&P 500 on a daily basis. We just don't have a way of valuing stocks right now because we don't have a way of figuring out earnings.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, It's going to be weird. Bob, thanks so much, Uh, Bob Bassani. We mentioned the House. Members are rushing back to Capitol Hill today to try to pass that $2 trillion stimulus bill. Check out the scene on the floor of the House right now. That is Speaker Pelosi. They are, I believe, about to take a 10-minute break. Kayla Tausche has the latest on where things stand. Kayla?
3: Kelly, we are in the final moments of debate on the House floor. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, talking about this bill, talking about the need to pass it. Uh, After this, as you mentioned, members are going to be taking roughly a 10-minute recess where they'll figure out exactly what shape this vote is going to take, whether it will be a shorter voice vote or a longer recorded vote, depending on how much opposition there is. You will see the House members socially distanced; They're spaced out in their seats. And during the vote, they will be filing onto the floor 30 members at a time, so it will take a little bit longer than usual in any case. I mentioned that objection. There was a late-night scramble after Kentucky lawmaker Thomas Massey uh, raised some of his own objections to the bill, uh, forcing lawmakers to scramble back to D.C. There's also been some concern raised by fiscal conservatives in the House. Uh, They put out a statement, the Freedom Caucus did, about uh, how they feel that this is too much spending, but it's unclear exactly whether members making up that group uh, would, in fact, vote against this bill. President Trump has said that he intends to sign it as soon as it arrives at the White House, and he's taking aim at General Motors today, lambasting the company for not producing enough ventilators, saying they said they were going to give us 40,000 very quickly. Now they're saying it will be 6,000 in late April, and he's saying invoke P. He later clarified that that is an invocation of the Defense Production Act. The White House had previously refrained from doing that because the president didn't want to nationalize companies, which he believed it did. And he also thought the private sector was doing enough to get some of this personal protective equipment to hospitals and to medical professionals who needed it. The FEMA director earlier this week said they did need to invoke the act. Uh, so clearly the president now feels that this situation has reached a tipping point where they need to invoke that. Though it's unclear, Kelly, how long it will take to turn that tweet into a legally binding memo that orders companies to do this. Kayla, going back to the House
1: vote, uh, the president also took aim at Congressman Massey, furious with him, said he should be kicked out of the Republican Party. And in response, there's a tweet stream from Massey that's interesting, where he talks about his concerns with this bill are what Democrats have done to it. He said they're the ones who delayed this. They added stuff like the millions of dollars for the Kennedy Center uh, and that he was upset about that and and not having uh, the ability to audit the Fed, among other factors. So bottom line, he can still hold this thing up.
3: Uh, Hold it up in terms of timing, Kelly, but the vote is still expected to pass. And one reason why Congressman Massey has come under such criticism over this is because the bill is likely to pass. It passed the Senate unanimously, 96 to zero. I mean, that's nearly unheard of in a Washington where partisanship is this bitter. So the fact that he was... uh, creating this fight and creating this delay for a vote that is not expected to be contentious otherwise. That's one of the reasons why the president and some members of his own party are angry about this.
1: Okay, so still uh, we'll wait this hour uh, for more action from Capitol Hill. And Kayla, we appreciate it. In the meantime, thank you, Kayla Tausche. Well, the vice president, Mike Pence, earlier joined CNBC to discuss the economy and the coronavirus response. Here's what he had to say about the market.
2: While
4: the the stock market has ebbed and and flowed uh, and even this week made dramatic uh, moves, uh, President Trump and our entire economic team believe that all the fundamentals continue to be strong and that as we deal with the coronavirus uh, that uh, this economy will come roaring back once we see our nation through this challenging time.
1: Are the fundamentals strong enough to get us roaring back? Joining me now are Brian Levitt, the global market strategist for North America at Invesco. Jim O'Sullivan is chief U.S. macro strategist at TD Securities. And our very own Rick Santelli as well. Rick, first on the markets and the positioning here, I I look at bond yields and wonder if if the market believes we're going to come roaring back. Uh, But maybe that's not a good proxy anymore for growth. What would you look at?
5: Well, you're exactly right. There's a lot of... uh illogic in the fixed income space. You know, if we look at this week in particular, whether it's CDX or credit spreads, everything has been really good. Really, Sunday night through this morning, everything narrowed, credits improved, historic week in terms of the issuance of investment-grade securities, both here and in Europe. But things are reversing a little bit today, and all this is going on with historic outflows in bond funds, historic inflows into short-term money market scenarios, and I think that the the credit market is unsure. You know, really, this is not an easy one, as the vice president pointed out. Here's the way I would look at it. If your hypothesis is that somehow we're going to be better off than the long-term view of months and months, I would say we have something going for us, liquidity. Big time liquidity. So if your hypothesis is things aren't going to be as bad as the worst case scenarios, then we're probably going to have a huge pickup in things like housing, investments, durable goods. You know, remember, harken back to Y2K. Y2K, we had tons of liquidity that essentially wasn't really needed. It helped fuel housing, maybe even helped fuel the tech wreck in terms of the upside. Now, I'm no doctor. But if things are better than worst case scenarios, which get covered more, we have a lot of things that could work in our economic favor.
1: No, and housing absolutely is a fascinating one because of the low rates, especially. Uh, Brian, let me bring you in on that. And as we were discussing off the top of the show, you have both the economy to consider uh, where rates are and where stock prices are. And now the fact like we were saying that that uh, earnings growth is is negative and probably, you know, more so than just the slight negative we're seeing already for the year.
6: Yeah, look, I mean, we saw a very drastic move over a very short period of time. So equities had gotten oversold and credit started to get oversold. And what we needed was a catalyst. We needed a policy response. And so the policy response came in and it was significant. And you had a very, very sharp uh, move to the upside in the biggest three-day game we've seen since the early 1930s. Now, where we are here is you'll need another catalyst. And so, You know, for the credit markets, the Federal Reserve is providing a lot of support. Um, So we'll be watching that closely. That tends to be the canary in the coal mine. I don't expect credit spreads uh, to to blow back out again significantly unless we get some really terrible news in terms of the number of new cases and how long we're going to be shut down as a society. But ultimately, that's what it gets to. We've seen the monetary response. We've seen the fiscal response. And and now we're left waiting uh, to see how the medical community can get out ahead of this ultimately we will get through this households were in good shape going into it the banks were in good shape going into it it's just a matter of how long this persists until we can really uh, start to bend that curve and get the number of new cases down
1: jim could something like housing lead us out of this
7: and i I, I, kelly i mean it's just pretty small part of the economy in general i mean i think you have to think about the economy broadly in terms of even just looking at the jobless claims number yesterday the three million increase. And of course they don't have precise details, but certainly the, the, the hotel industry, the restaurant industry um, are, are front and center of that. Um, but just more broadly, I think the whole economy to some extent is, is shutting down right now. Um, and I think there sh- certainly should be some comeback by the second quarter, and uh, by the third quarter rather, if, uh, if the shutdowns start f- phasing out. But the question is how much damage is done in the meantime, how many businesses go out of business How many people are let go and you're left with a higher unemployment rate and maybe a recession dynamic, which still has some playing out to do. So I certainly wouldn't count on the small, relatively small housing sector alone to bring us back.
1: What about phase four uh, fiscal stimulus? Because, you know, we're already going down that road, aren't we? I mean, people are worried about the health of the states, among many other factors.
7: And um, well, phase three is pretty big. I mean, it's, uh, they haven't really given us a proper total yet, but we aggregate the numbers in there when you include tax deferrals at 2.5 trillion, which is 12% of GDP. Now that's gonna be spread out over time. And um, about half of that is, 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 is loans and tax deferrals rather than what might be called pure fiscal stimulus. But it is pretty sizable. And I think over time that will help, but uh, for sure it looks like there's gonna be a phase four as well and I think as we see the depth of the recession over the next couple of months, I think yesterday's claims number is just a taste of that, then we will probably have more and more pressure for phase four as well. But ultimately, yes, there's a lot of stimulus here. And on the other side, of course, there's a lot of downward momentum. Ultimately, I do think the stimulus will be powerful enough to to contribute to a recovery and certainly limit the recession. But in the meantime, we're gonna see some pretty dramatic weakness in the economic data.
1: All right, uh, and we appreciate your time today, Brian Leavitt, Jim O'Sullivan, uh, and Rick Santelli as well. And I should mention, we are hearing on uh, the newswires from a House Democratic aide who says it looks like they will pass this uh, via a voice vote. We'll keep you posted on those developments as soon as we get them. There's another big company jumping in to help fight the coronavirus. Let's head to George Bosa for that news. George.
0: Kelly, Google just announcing a more than $800 million global effort to help small and medium-sized businesses, health organizations and governments, as well as health workers on the front line of the global COVID-19 pandemic. In a blog post, CEO of Alphabet, Sundar Pichai, he outlined these efforts. They include $250 million in ad grants that will go to the WHO and more than 100 governments globally to provide information. There's $200 million earmarked for an investment fund to support NGOs and financial institutions, help provide capital to small businesses. There's also $340 million that they're committing in Google ad credits to small and medium businesses with active accounts Over the past year on Google. And Kelly, there's also other measures like Google Cloud credits for academic institutions and researchers. There's also financial support to help production capacity for medical supplies. And this is really just the latest. You mentioned it, another big company jumping into the fray, but you've seen lots of big tech assist in the global effort to confront coronavirus. Google has also launched, of course, the website for resources. Back to you.
1: Wow. OK, Deirdre, thanks very much, Deirdre Jabosa. Speaking of companies helping out, Apple's creating a new app to deal with COVID-19 in conjunction with the White House. Josh Lipton is here to explain. Josh.
8: So that's right, Kelly. So here's how this is going to work, is that starting today here in the U.S., if you're 18 and over, you're going to be able to download this new app from the App Store, or you can visit this new website that's been set up and access specific screening tools and resources. So users are going to be asked a series of questions about symptoms and travel, and then they're going to receive guidance. So whether to continue practice social distancing, whether to closely monitor symptoms and contact a medical provider, even whether or not a test is recommended recommended. Apple, not alone in this challenge, as you just pointed out. Other big tech companies certainly trying to step up and help out. Alphabet's Verily, you heard Deirdre talk about that. More than 1,000 volunteers from across that company now working on its own screening and testing efforts. Cisco, we know, committing $225 million in the fight against the virus. Facebook featuring a coronavirus information center on top of users' news feeds. Of course, this coming, by the way, after Apple CEO Tim Cook just said the company has now sourced 10 million masks for the U.S. Kelly, back to you.
1: You know, Josh, as we've looked at China's response, one of the things they've done is, is have this great integrated app that everybody uses that shows whether they're free of coronavirus and how many people are infected you know, in the region that they're in. Could Facebook or Apple, with the ubiquity of their uh, platforms, do something like that here?
8: Well, so it's interesting. I think um, one point here, Kelly, is you're trying to get reliable information, right? As our colleague at CNBC.com just pointed out, Apple has been screening its own apps, looking for reliable information from dependable resources. So I don't think any surprise here. Look who Apple partnered with, White House, uh, FEMA, and CDC to try to create a central place where people can try to get more reliable information, actionable information they can act on, Kelly.
1: What kind of dog is that?
8: Yeah. So this is one of the joys, of course, of working from home. So America gets to listen to my chihuahua freaking out. Next time I'll try to have the kid freaking out. And sometimes they do it together. That's when the, the really good stuff happens.
1: <laughs> no, I, I have to say, I enjoy this aspect of it. Josh, it's good to see you. Thanks so much. Josh Lipton. Let's turn to much more somber news. Uh, Let's get the very latest on the coronavirus worldwide. The number of confirmed cases is spiking, now more than 540,000, and the U.S. has more than any other country. Sue Herrera
0: has the latest for us. Sue? Indeed I do, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. We start in Italy, where hopes the virus had peaked are dimming. That country just reported a record 919 new deaths since yesterday. The total death toll is above 9,100. Total cases in Italy rose about 6,000 to about 86,500. And as Kelly mentioned, only the U.S. has more cases. The Navy hospital ship Mercy has arrived in Los Angeles, bringing 1,000 beds and 800 medical personnel. The ship will handle non-coronavirus patients, easing the strain on local hospitals. And South Africa has announced its first two deaths as that country begins a three-week lockdown to fight the outbreak. South Africa has more than 1,000 cases, the most of any country on that continent. As always, for more coronavirus coverage at CNBC, go to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. Okay, Sue, thanks very much. The pandemic
1: has fast tracked coronavirus-specific drug developments, but that's coming at a cost to other drugs
9: in the pipeline. For more on that story, let's bring in Meg Terrell. Meg. Hi, Kelly. Well, of course the COVID-19 pandemic is disrupting all kinds of businesses and that includes uh, clinical trials around the world. Um, Basically every major company has said there will be some potential impact to either ongoing clinical trials or in enrolling new clinical trials. And these are just some of the companies that have either put out press releases saying that they're seeing these kinds of potential delays or who we've been in contact with and who have said uh, that in fact is the case. Merck, Pfizer, Eli Lilly, Bristol Myers, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, Galapagos, which is partnered with Gilead, Bluebird Bio, which is working on gene therapies, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals, which just said that this morning uh, they might see potential delays in some clinical trials or in starting new ones. Uh, That company also saying, though, they don't expect any kind of supply disruptions to their existing medicines. Joining us now to discuss that more is Dr. Jeff Leiden, the CEO of Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Jeff, it's great to have you on the phone with us. Um, Tell us about these potential delays that we're seeing in clinical trials across the industry. Um, What do you expect this will mean down the line in terms of getting new medicines uh, through the approval process and out to patients?
10: It's it's great to be with you, as always, Meg. Sorry it uh, has to be remote today. Um, So as you pointed out, pretty much all of the companies in the industry are going to see some impact on their clinical trials. It's early days still, so hard to predict how much. We announced this morning that we do expect to see some impact on the trials, but it will be very different for the different trials. Some of our trials require medical centers. Obviously, they'll be more impacted. Others are more remote. They'll be less impacted. Uh, The bottom line for us is that all trials that, that we have going are ongoing, but we may temporarily pause enrollment of new patients. And the, the principle here is pretty, pretty simple. I think we're operating with three goals in mind. One, we want to protect our patients. We don't want to expose patients in clinical trials to COVID-19 infection. Two, we want to optimize the allocation of healthcare resources because we certainly don't want critical healthcare resources that should be used for COVID-19 to be used on clinic, on our clinical trials. And then finally, we of course need to maintain the integrity of our trials with uh, regulators. So I think it's a little early to say what's gonna happen. Everything depends on how quickly all of us uh, get back to to a more normal life and and the COVID-19 outbreak resolves. But I think we can certainly expect to see some impact on some trials across the industry.
9: And as we are seeing that potential delay, What are you seeing as you, as the CEO of a drug company who evaluates data every day, uh, including very early stage data, as you look at what's available on things like hydroxychloroquine, uh, on remdesivir, uh, on the potential antibody treatments in clinical trials now? It's early data, but how much promise would you say there is now, and how soon could we see something that might actually work?
10: Yeah, again, very early days, but I think it's important to take a step back and remember that that literally within days to weeks of the outbreak starting in China, we had identified the viral agent and sequenced the virus, and we're already designing new kinds of vaccines and testing drugs. That That's remarkable. And it's really a reflection of the tremendous advances in biotech science that have occurred over the last decade or so. That would not have been possible 15 years ago. And if you think about the new drugs and new approaches, we sort of think about them in in two buckets, Meg. One is to look for existing approved drugs that might be active against the virus. And as you know, there are a number of those that are being tested. If we could find one of those, we're literally talking about months before we could make such a drug available uh, to patients. That's the shorter-term solution, the best-case scenario. Uh, The other thing that we're doing, obviously, as an industry, is looking for new vaccines and antibody treatments those take a bit longer. That'll be nine to 12 months because we have to test them not only for their efficacy, but also to make sure they're safe to give to patients. But regardless of whether it's six months or 12 months, uh, I'm very confident it's just a matter of time until we do find a treatment for this virus.
9: Well, we know that Vertex, uh, as well is stepping in to um, try to help the community in Boston, where you're based, you are contributing to the Boston Resiliency Fund. Tell us about that and about what industry's uh, responsibility and role is to help communities in that way.
10: Yeah, you, know, you know, first as you mentioned, we have been very fortunate at Vertex because we are seeing literally no effect of the outbreak on our business. Um, that's because we've we've uh, designed our supply chain to ensure we can continue to get our medicines to patients, and also because our patients have underlying lung disease, so they take their medicines in a very diligent way. But the other part of the response, I think, from industry in general is is to be good civic citizens and help out in the community. And I've been uh, working as a sort of unofficial advisor to Mayor Walsh here in Boston. We talk um, a couple times each day, uh, and our first uh, order of business was to make sure that we got all of the shelter-in-place orders, the the shutdowns, the the, um, social distancing guidelines. Right, and he he did a tremendous job there. But then we started talking on March 14th or so and saying, look, we know there are gonna be a lot of cases. We know there'll be cases in our cities and some of our most vulnerable neighborhoods. What else can the private sector do to help? And there were three things that, that became obvious to us. One was food. We're gonna have a need for food for patients who are either quarantined or infected in their homes. Uh, And for kids who now are not able to get food at school sometimes. Basic medical supplies, obviously very important. And then home education, again, for those kids who've been sent home and all the Boston public school kids and kids across Massachusetts have been sent home. So we came up with the idea of raising what we call the Boston Resiliency Fund. We thought we'd try to raise initially $10 Uh Vertex kicked it off with the Vertex Foundation making a million-dollar gift. And then I called a couple of my friends, Jack Connors and Ann Klebanski, two of the business leaders here in Boston. And we went out. It's been really remarkable, Meg. Within the first day of announcing the fund, we surpassed our $10 million goal. And a week later, we were over $20 million, and we're still moving north. And I think it's just a real testament to how the Boston business community comes together uh, in a time of crisis. They did it in the marathon bombing case. They're doing it now, and it's just very heartwarming to see the business community come together in that
11: way.
9: Well, it is good to hear, Jeff. Thank you for joining us. It's nice to hear good stories of kindness and uh, people coming together as, as we're all in such a scary time right now. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Meg. Meg, our thanks to you as well.
1: Meg Terrell with the CEO of Vertex. Again, there will be impacts from the focus on coronavirus to other drugs that were in the pipeline. Coming up, small businesses were a big focus in this stimulus bill, but lots of questions remain. Who's eligible? How much can they get? And what are the stipulations? We'll dive into all of those details. Plus, state of the states, the economic slowdown is expected to take its toll not just on individuals and businesses, but on states as well. We're going to look at which ones could come under extreme stress as the downturn continues. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. I just figured it out myself. Uh, We're back in two. Welcome back with the Dow Down 690 points. Breaking news out of Washington on the stimulus bill. Kayla Tausche, what can you tell us?
3: Well, the eyes have it on the floor, Kelly. There was just a voice vote that was conducted, and uh, there were enough members uh, reached in a quorum. 216 was the number that had to be reached. And essentially, if you get that number, then uh, they were able to deny a vote to the lawmaker uh, who raised opposition in the last day. That's Congressman Massey from Kentucky. He is on the floor speaking right now. He's expected to uh, demand a recorded vote. That request is expected to be denied because he does not have another lawmaker supporting him in that effort and i'm getting word in my ear that that was in fact uh, denied so we'll bring you more as we have it uh, as this color continues coming off the floor is exactly what this vote looks like kelly but kayla barring any
1: additional i mean i mean is this it is this the the last step which means that as uh, secretary mnuchin referenced as soon as this becomes law you know start the clock three weeks people could have those that money in their direct deposits
3: that is correct kelly yes wow all
1: right kayla thanks We appreciate it. Kayla Tausche, let's check the markets, which are moving lower. On this news, the Dow's down 740 points. You could call it buy the rumor, sell the fact, who knows, but we're down about 100 points relative to where we were uh, before we had confirmation of that vote. That's a 3.3% drop for the blue chips. The S&P is down 3%, exact same percentage decline for the Nasdaq. We'll continue to keep an eye on it. Remember, Dow's still tracking for its best week here since the 1930s. Quick check on oil, which has been such a tough one lately. Uh, It's down again today. Demand continues to drop. We are now hovering just over $21 a barrel. That's another 6% slide. It's just been relentless. All S&P sectors are trading lower today as well. Energy, the big one, no surprise. Industrials and communication services all down the energy sector, down another 6%. Tough session, too, for the cruise stocks. Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, and Carnival all down uh, 18 to, in Norwegian's case, 22%. Uh, Norwegian trading at just over $12 a share. Uh, the bank's not spared some of the pain today for J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and Bank of America. We're seeing declines of between 3 and 4%. J.P. Morgan, interestingly enough, is down more than 7%. Today today. Still, the sector is up 12 percent this week. This rescue bill uh, has $349 billion in aid for small businesses. It's become pretty controversial. It will be distributed by the Small Business Administration, but everybody wants the details. And our Kate Rogers has been digging through this bill for just that. She's here to explain who is eligible, Kate, and how to get the money.
12: Hey, Kelly, that's right. And for these small business owners, that cash cannot come quickly enough. So here's who's eligible. Uh, In the bill, small businesses and nonprofits defined as 501c3 organizations with up to 500 employees will be eligible for benefits, as well as those who are self-employed and independent contractors. You have to have been in business as of February 15th in order to access that money. Here's what you're going to be able to access. Up to $10 million, borrowing is going to be based on payroll expenses. The loans also have a maximum interest rate of up to 4% with up to 10-year terms. Here's what you can use that money for. The loans can be used for expenses like payroll, mortgages, leases, and utility payments. Also important here, there will be loan forgiveness. It's going to depend on expenses and layoffs. A Senate aide told CNBC the number of employees will be based on staffing numbers from February. So if you're a business owner that had to make some layoffs but you're able to bring back enough workers, the loan forgiveness amount may wind up being higher. The SBA, of course, is going to put out more guidance on this as it becomes law. The 7A program is an existing partnership between private lenders and the SBA, which guarantees those loans. They also have a small business disaster loan assistance program that is up and running. Those are smaller loans of up to $2 million. You can apply for those online. Obviously, we're all still digging through this and learning more as we go, so we'll bring you any details as we get them. Kelly, back over to
1: you. Two quick follow-up questions. Uh, The first is, Are people going to their local Small Business Administration office or, as it it sounds like from the bill, going to their local bank and maybe the banker they've had a relationship with and the funds will be dispersed kind of to that person via either the Fed or the Small Business Administration?
12: Yeah, so the 7A program is already in existence, and this is just a big expansion of that, so you would go to your private lender. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin had said that they're going to be expanding the number of lenders who are able to participate in the 7A program. We haven't gotten details on what that looks like just yet, uh, but... I think the message here is that there will be broader access coming down the line. The disaster assistance loans, you can go to SBA.gov. They have application details there. We've talked to some small business owners that were doing those both in paper form and also uh, via online application. Having some issues, obviously, as you can imagine, demand is really high. There's been a ton of businesses impacted across the country. People are trying to access that cash quickly uh, because the CARES Act is not up and running yet. Um, and the 7 eight expansion program under the CARES Act isn't accessible yet. So the disaster loans are one avenue that mm. some small business owners that I've spoken to have already, you know, begun to explore and apply for. One final question. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I have a neighbor who's
1: a self-employed contractor. So technically he's his own employee. In other words, doesn't really have any employees. Would someone like that be eligible?
12: Mm hmm. Yes. So under this and under the text that we read, self-employed and independent contractors would be eligible. But like I mentioned, this is going to be based on payroll expenses. So if you're your only employee, I guess it depends on how much you're paying yourself and what that looks like for you. But uh, your neighbors should be covered from what we understand. All right.
1: News we can use. Uh, Kate, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, Kate Rogers is all over the small business uh, effect from this bill. Coming up with states and cities reeling from coronavirus, is relief for them going to be the next major Washington bailout? Jerry Seib of The Wall Street Journal weighs in. Plus, college chaos. The admissions process has been thrown into disarray by this pandemic. We'll look at what that means for the industry and for students. And take a look at this week's best Dow performers before we go. Boeing up 75 percent, but Home Depot up 25 percent. Nike, United Tech, American Express, all with big gains. We'll be right back.
0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. As many businesses are forced to close and with cities enforcing shutdowns, States are losing millions of dollars in revenue and could cause lots of stress to their budgets. So which ones could be hurting the most? Dom Chu joins us with that story now. Dom?
13: All right. So, Kelly, let's start with the good news first. First of all, according to S&P Global Ratings, the vast majority of municipal debt in this country is still investment grade or double A or better, in fact. So... For many Muni bond investors, the pain is not being felt right now. But what could happen if things get worse? First of all, again, good news first. The most credit-worthy states out there, 15 of the 50 states in our union actually have triple a rated debt either on a general obligation bond basis the taxing authority of the bonds basis or on an issuer basis those states are shown there mostly in the midwest and the mid-atlantic florida texas included there as well now for the states that could have some real stress if things get bad from a fiscal standpoint take a look at these five states pennsylvania connecticut kentucky New Jersey and Illinois, no secret there, they've been going through some fiscal issues for years at this point. Those states could come under more stress if businesses really start to take a hit in this coronavirus shutdown. One of the things that we're looking at, how can investors prepare for what could happen in munis? Well, credit ratings agencies are looking at a number of different things with regard to whether they upgrade or downgrade credit. They're looking at the size of cash and tax reserves that states have, the viability and variability of those revenues from a tax basis or anything else, and then pension and other liabilities as well. Those are all big factors. But Kelly, a key point to be made here is you remember that map I showed you, you'll notice that Texas and Florida, both triple A rated states for right now. But with Texas heavily reliant on the oil and gas industry, and for Florida, more heavily reliant on things like travel and tourism. So, as hotel, flight, cruise revenues start to dry up, oil revenues start to dry up, could those states be in the crosshairs for potential stress? It's something that many muni bond investors right now looking for income are paying close attention to, Kel.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, because the rest of them are the usual suspects, the fragile five, I'm going to call them, uh, that we always seem to hear about. Uh, we'll do. We'll see if this one is different. Dom, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Dominic Chu. And just the last few minutes, the House passed the phase three relief bill. The ink still isn't dry yet, but already people are saying relief for the states could be coming in phase four or five. But we might be able to avoid all that if we can get money in the hands of those who need it fast. My next guest says time is of the essence. And joining me now is Jerry Seib. He's executive Washington editor at The Wall Street Journal. And Jerry, that's exactly the kind of background I would expect you to have, uh, deep and and rich and and somehow reflecting a long history and and tradition, which is exactly what we turn to you for. So what do you make of this vote and the speed of it? And you know, this is also unprecedented. Can they get money to people quick?
4: Well, you know, that is the key. I think speed is of the essence. But back up a step here and think about this compared to the 2008, 2009 uh, rescue package, which was TARP, the bank bailout, which passed in October of 2008. And finally, the stimulus package that ha- passed in January of 2009 when the Obama administration was brand new. So a span of four months to get a trillion and a half dollars out the door. Congress is about to do this in two weeks, and it's going to be way north than two trillion. So it's going to be bigger, and it's come together much faster. So messy as it has looked over the last few days, this is a pretty amazing process. But It's interesting. We all, you know, in our business, we tend to stress the details, uh, you know, justifiably. Um, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, who's really got to worry about when the rubber hits the road, has been stressing speed. Get the money out there. And that's because you got to get it in the hands of consumers if they've lost their jobs so they don't have to shut down. They can still pay their rent. They can still pay their utility bills. you got to get it to small businesses before they have to close their doors and declare bankruptcy. Those are the things that will determine both how quickly the economy can bounce back and how deep the damage is in the long run.
1: How bad uh, was the pork, so to speak, in this bill, Jerry? I mean, they- As we get more of the details, like you said, there's going to be plenty uh, to focus on. Um, So how significant do you think some of those uh, details will be? And what do you think would be the overall takeaway? I guess what I'm saying is the problem is if people don't feel like they can see the immediate benefit of this right away, it's going to just engender growing criticism of what was done.
4: Well, yeah, you're right, because, again, if you go back to the 2008-2009 example, people felt they suffered a lot of pain personally after the bailouts and the rescues were passed. Um, And that's because they couldn't make their mortgage payments. They lost their houses in a lot of cases. And meanwhile, the big banks got bailed out. And that's what produced the Tea Party sentiment, which came, you know, in starting in 2009, the populist uprising. There was a real reaction to the fact that people felt there was a disconnect between what the big guys got and what the average guys got. So I think a key here is how fast you get the money to the average American. How fast is the small business owner or just the consumer actually helped her? Is he or she rescued? That's a perception, but it's also a reaction. But I think it's a really important reality. Um, you know, the last time around, the, the, the bailout was focused on the financial sector because that was the problem. Well, now the financial sector is the symptom of the problem. The real problem is in the real economy, and the consumer economy. And the political reaction will depend on how fast and how efficiently the government manages to fix up that problem.
1: You know, plenty of people have said if the cruise uh, lines registered offshore to avoid taxes, maybe re-registering them onshore should have been a, a requirement in order for them to get relief. Or for the airlines, you know, they're just such a hated industry that no one likes the idea of uh, of giving them funds. Boeing, that one remains controversial because of everything that happened with the 737 MAX uh, problem. So, you know, you can almost go industry by industry and uh, understand why people are sort of alarmed at, at where this money is going.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, but you have to remember that you know this is different than the last one in the sense that there are more conditions and more strings attached. So, you know, there was a lesson learned last time, which is uh, you know the taxpayer needs to have the feeling that he or she got his money's worth out of this deal and so you now have the the fairly remarkable prospect of the government taking an equity stake in airlines in return for having offered a rescue package uh so and 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 there are more conditions in this legislation about executive bonuses and stock buybacks being prohibited, that sort of thing. So, you know, there will be surprises in here that will make people mad. I've no doubt about that. But overall, I think people are a little wiser this time than they were in 2008 and 2009 about the potential for bad optics coming out of this.
1: And finally, one of the criticisms that Congressman Massey had of the bill is he said, look, if you just took $2 trillion and divided it by the working population, 150 million Americans, that could be $13,000 a person. And he said, maybe that would be a better approach. What what would your response be to that?
4: Yeah, but, you know, that doesn't fix the liquidity problem that businesses have, because if you have $13,000 in your pocket and you can't go out of your house to go buy something from the small business down the street, the small business down the street is still going to go broke. You know, there's a there's a peculiar nature to this problem, and it's not all going to be solved by getting cash in the hands of consumers who just can't spend it right away. You have to do both things at the same time. And so that's a, that's a nice soundbite. But I don't think it reflects the reality of a credit liquidity bankruptcy crisis that's running alongside the the crisis that uh, many people are feeling in their own lives and their own bank accounts.
1: And and hopefully that can help forestall even the need for phase four or phase five. Uh, Jerry, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Jerry side with The Wall Street Journal coming up. The college admissions process has been turned on its head as students are forced off campus, sports are canceled, and international students' future is in doubt. We're going to look at the ripple effect that's having. Plus, construction, weight loss, and off price. A look at Wall Street's bullish calls today. And a quick look at the airlines. After two days of huge gains, they are trading lower today. JetBlue Spirit united among the worst performers. Still, the Dow is now down 544 points. So now we're coming back a little bit after the stimulus bill was passed. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Some bullish calls on the street today. Let's start with Loop Capital upgrading Home Depot to buy, although trimming its price target by $5 to 240 The firm believes the retailer will be less impacted than most retailers based on the simple fact that its stores are expected to remain open. Construction is considered an essential industry. They believe many projects are still ongoing. We've got a roofing project happening on my street. Home Depot shares are at 192 today. Up next, Morgan Stanley upgrading WW, formerly Weight Watchers, to overweight with a $24 price target. The analyst saying, that while the company will likely be negatively impacted in the short term, the stock has an attractive valuation and could be a beneficiary of what they call the post-shelter-in-place world. You know, not stress eating, getting back in shape maybe. Uh, Anyway, their new price target implies nearly 40% upside, WW fractionally lower to about $16 $70 a share today. And Deutsche Bank naming raw stores a top pick within the off-price retail group. The analyst notes that company's strong balance sheet, domestic-only store exposure, larger apparel mix, and track record of consistent same-store sales growth throughout the years. They did lower the price target to 103 from 126, and raw stores is down nearly 3% today to about $83 a share. Meantime, the impact of coronavirus is certainly being felt on college campuses across the country and the pain is hitting university finances. The NCAA announcing a revised financial distribution to its Division One member schools in response to the cancellation of March Madness, which generates most of their revenue. As a result, the NCAA is digging into its reserve fund to deliver a payout of only two hundred and twenty five million dollars. That's less than half of what schools were expecting at the same time we're learning that pennsylvania state universities are expecting a loss of a hundred million dollars due to refunding room and board payments and all this has thrown the admissions process into flux this year for more i'm joined by sarah haberson she's an independent college counselor and the founder of application nation sarah welcome the wall street journal suggests it's going to be easier for domestic students to get into college this fall you agree
14: I do. You know, unfortunately, the pandemic of COVID-19 affected admissions offices right at the time that they were going to be releasing regular decisions. So most of those decisions happen in the month of March. So admissions leaders had to make some last-minute decisions on how to make sure that they were still going to be able to bring in their freshman class on target. So, in some cases, that meant reducing the number of international students they were bringing into the class or admitting to the class, and, instead, it meant more acceptances for domestic students, which is always a good sign. I think we are beginning, actually, to see an important shift in the college admissions world. We saw a little bit of that happen last year with the college admissions scandal, but this is unprecedented. Right. The pressure on admissions offices to bring in a freshman class on target this year are just going to be you know beyond anything a dean has ever experienced
1: it's interesting to watch the figures go up so harvard had a record low acceptance rate of 4.6 percent that's bounced up to 4.9 percent dartmouth has gone up about a percentage point 8.8 percent so it might be a little easier to get in this year but what about financial aid because if the reason comes from financial hardship our university is going to be less able to give you that
14: And that is a big part of a family's decision about whether or not they feel comfortable sending their child off to college. So a lot of these families are weighing the fact that they can't visit the campus again. In some cases, the student has never seen campus. They were waiting to see if they got admitted. They're concerned about financial aid and merit scholarships, but this is actually a shift where students have more power in the process this year than ever before. So what I tell my families in Application Nation, if they got a better financial aid package from another institution, especially a competitor, or a better merit scholarship, I encourage them to reach out to their admissions officer and their financial aid office and show the other financial aid offer or merit scholarship. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that can be the difference. Um, But ultimately, these families are concerned about distance. They're concerned about cost. And those college admissions offices are just as concerned. They know that not having on campus programming in the month of April for their admitted students is going to really affect their yield rate, which is the percentage of students that enroll after being admitted. Right. Admissions deans know that the best way to get a student to enroll and send in their enrollment deposit is to get them back on campus. And without that happening, these admissions offices are really scrambling.
1: I remember a few years ago, Virginia Tech accidentally had a huge freshman class, and I wonder if we're potentially going to see that all over the place. Either colleges have too large of a class or too small of a class, it's going to be a mess. Let me ask you a big picture question, because I know you've thought so much about this throughout your career. Now that students realize they can just take classes online, now we all know the social aspect of college is not the same when you're home with your parents, But is this really a moment of accelerating change where all of a sudden you have students going, why would I pay all this money to go on campus when I can just do this different online type of model?
14: Yeah, but it's interesting because the elite colleges and universities out there have really looked down upon that virtual learning experience. But now they have no choice. It's unclear about how long this is going to go on. But families are looking at that ticket price of, you know, Duke University, $81,000 a year. Um, And for a family who's never seen campus, it's a huge commitment. It's like buying a $300,000 house without ever walking through it. I was just talking to a family last night in my application nation group the family lives in california the student got admitted to duke they hadn't visited they were waiting to see if the student got in but at this point how do you commit to a school that you haven't seen and you're not sure about how long distance learning or virtual learning is going to go on but these colleges especially the highly selective the elite ones have not invested in that virtual learning model they have a lot to learn over the next couple of weeks, couple of months, and years, everything has changed. The student college experience will never be the same again.
1: Yeah, it does kind of feel like that. Uh, $81,000 a year. I mean, it's unsustainable. Yeah. Well, that's what we said, uh, yeah. you know, twenty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 ago. Sarah, thanks again. We appreciate it. Thanks yeah, for joining me today. Absolutely. Sarah Harberson. And a quick programming note, tune in to CNBC tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern for our primetime special report, Markets in Turmoil. And at 7.30, CNBC's Path Forward, your business with Marcus Limonis, will talk about the challenges facing independent and small businesses. Tweet us your questions using the hashtag CNBC CNBCPathForward. And stocks are off-session lows this afternoon with the major averages down now about 2 to 2.5%. Two People have been moving to cash and out of bond funds in record numbers, putting $234 billion into cash last week, according to Bank of America, and pulling out $218 billion from bond funds. What does that tell us about the overall markets? Joining me on the CNBC Newsline is Dave Smith. He's chief investment officer at Rockland Trust. Dave, uh, bullish sign? I mean, right? if everyone's moving to cash, what do you think?
11: Well, I think there's a component of that is related, obviously, some people hitting the panic button. But a component of it also is rebalancing that's natural. For folks who have strategic asset allocations, uh, very likely their allocations drifted significantly in the sell-off that happened in the prior couple of weeks. So I think there's a natural flow out of bonds into stocks that is a natural course of rebalancing.
1: What about the flows into cash?
11: Yeah, that's just obviously a sign of panic. I I think there's clearly some folks who uh, have reach their maximum pain point. I think if you think about the the baby boom generation, uh, either recently entered or soon to be entering retirement, Uh, they've been through two scares already. Uh, This one, the difference this time is they simply don't have the time to earn it back. So as they look at their future and say, I just can't take another 20, 30, 40% hit to my portfolio, they reach a maximum pain point and they sell. And, And unfortunately, that disallows them from participating in a week like the one that we're finishing here.
1: Right. So you say, what are you seeing person? I mean, personally, anecdotally, um, you know, do you think people have panicked too much? And what do you say to those who go, I, I need a different strategy uh, for the next, you know, three to
11: five years? Yeah. So fortunately here at Rockland Trust, we do a very good job of preparing our clients for these eventualities. This is part of investing. Unfortunately, it has to be it has to occur occasionally. We have these pullbacks. And so you set the expectation when they come, you can, you can remind clients of what you, what just you sold them before. Like, it's just going to happen. Um, however, there are certain clients that just, you know, they've, they've, they have a number in their head they can't go below and they just move to sell and you try like heck to keep them engaged and keep them invested so they can participate fully when things turn around, but sometimes they just can't do it. To a broader community, you know, we try to help everybody recognize, again, that this is part of investing. Uh, when you look through time, these pullbacks happen. Unfortunately, this one was very violent, something none of us have really ever experienced before, and at each and every time. They're based on a new set of circumstances. So every time you go through it, although the outcome and statistics right. are often similar, the, the driver of what's causing the sell-off is different. So it's hard to evaluate what it really means in the moment.
1: Yeah, everyone was waiting for the next 0809 and instead we got a pandemic, uh, maybe you right. know, kind of having morphed into more of a financial event. Uh, David, it's reassuring to hear from you, and we appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Kelly. David Smith is the Chief Investment Officer at Rockland Trust. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen
3: to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.